Welcome back, everybody. This is Dr. Scott, along with my partner in crime-ish. Crime-ish, I like it. Hey, it's Dr. Shiloh. From LA Not So Confidential, welcome back. You're here with us today for episode 107. Lots of exciting stuff happening. We are living our best lives in these two months. Is that what we call it? (laughs) Yes, along with all the the stress that comes with it, because we got a lot going on. In two days, we're going to see you guys at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Dallas. Cannot wait to see who's able to show up for that. That also means that we are one month closer to the Savannah Crime Expo that occurs on September 10th. It happens in Savannah, Georgia. And then we have the Pacific Northwest Festival on October 8th and 9th in Auburn, Washington, right outside Seattle. So please check our show notes and our website for more details. We're busy. Busy, busy. Yes. I'm getting very excited though. Like I feel like this, I'm peeking at the stress piece with putting together final touches on things and getting into excitement mode, especially for Savannah. Like I just can't wait to wander around that city. It looks so amazing. Oh, and I started Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil last night, the book. Oh yeah, the book is great. And it's a good movie too, but the book is really good. Yes. Okay. So our recap for episode 106, that was our documentary review episode. We went a little out of order this month and it was on the Netflix series, Web of Make Believe. So we focused on the very first episode, Death by Swat, where we explored the evolution of this really ultimate form of trolling, but in real life. Yeah. And with very, very real consequences, as we find out throughout the documentary. The documentary follows the incredible path of destruction at the hands of a swatting perpetrator out of Los Angeles. So very fitting, very interesting, and gave us an opportunity to finally have an episode dedicated to the phenomenon of swatting. And also part of another great series on all internet crime. So it's it's a great little series that we may even do another episode on one of their other subjects, but definitely go back and give it a listen if you get a chance. Yes. So for today, again, kind of weird how these things happen, but I was toying around with this topic of looking at assassinations and people who perpetrate assassinations. And here we go. Just very fitting that we are going to be in Dallas next weekend, the city of one of the most famous historical assassinations. And we're going to explore that today for sure. This is not your Oliver Stone JFK conspiracy episode. So don't come at us with that. We're going to try and stick to research as much as possible and give you the facts as we know them for the cases that we're going to cover today. But... Going back to biblical days, assassinations have been a thing. Assassinations can be discussed in a number of ways, including during times of war and when fighting international terrorism, such as like having to hunt down and take out the head of the snake of an organization. And then there's also a rich history across cultures of assassinations, furthering war victories, and the freeing of enslaved or marginalized groups where a tyrant of a leader perhaps just had to be taken out. But we're going to keep this conversation focused on the quote-unquote everyday person who feels compelled to carry out an assassination for their own personal reasons in more modern and contemporary times. 
Yes. And we're also not going to address contract killing or hitmen because that's its own specific genre. And we will definitely have that as a topic for a separate episode in the future. But recently, there was global news of a high profile assassination that occurred in a historically very safe country with traditionally low rates of violence. And in July of this year, Japan's former prime minister, Shinzo Abe, was shot at close range and killed while he was giving a political campaign speech in the historic town of Nara, which is just outside Kyoto. He was shot from behind with a homemade firearm, and the 41-year-old suspect was immediately taken into custody, and then preliminary information shows the suspect had admitted to wanting to kill Mr. Abe because he falsely believed that Abe was connected to a religious organization that he held a grudge against. Wow. A lot going on there, but very significant for a country that, you know, doesn't even allow gun ownership. Yeah, I think it's good to highlight this incident and the one you're going to talk about in a second, just because this isn't just something that happened in the 60s. I mean, it's, it's still a threat today. Yeah. I mean, and this morning. There was a story that popped up about a guy who last Christmas had attempted to gain access to and assassinate the Queen of England. He was dressed in a hood and a mask. He was armed with a crossbow. He came within eyesight of the Queen's apartment before he was apprehended. And he told the protection detail, I'm here to kill the Queen. He had been held at the Broadmoor High Security Psychiatric Hospital since his capture. And he now has been charged with treason. And the specific portion of treasons he faces comes from a 180-year-old treason act, which reads, intent to injure the person of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, or to alarm Her Majesty. He's only 20 years old, and he's from Southampton. Yeah. So as you can imagine, we're going to be just trigger warnings here. We're going to be talking about gun violence and murder. And we will talk about the ways in which assassins carry out these these murders and, and break it down even by what type of weapon they use. Yes. So we need to go back. And I thought it was really interesting because... This topic relies on many other foundational episodes that we've covered previously. Stalking behaviors, delusional disorders, grievance-driven violent behavior. We've talked about a lot recently. And as I've been doing more and more research on mass casualty events, it's interesting to go back and see how people would attempt to get their grievances met throughout history, as well as looking at the trends of what the public kind of becomes obsessed with in this true crime way of life that seems to impact us, or I guess what the media chooses to cover. So I want to go backwards because we're going to end up landing on assassinations. But if you look at the 2000s, it's all about mass casualty events and things that are often streamed online with legacy tokens like manifestos being left online. And then the 90s to the early 2000s, you have school shootings that was were sort of the, the crime that we were all very fearful of, still are. But that's when they really rose to the level of being in our face all the time. And then the 90s seemed like it was all about domestic terrorism. You know, we had the Oklahoma City bombing and some other really high-profile incidents in which individuals were wreaking havoc on our homeland, and that started to develop into its own thing. And then, of course... 70s and 80s serial killers was the flavor of those decades for what we were really intrigued with. But the 60s and into the 70s was really about assassinations. And it was just 
a very interesting time in history, some very prolific assassinations of political figures, including JFK, Malcolm X, MLK, Robert Kennedy. And the 60s was a period of intense civil unrest, not just here, but also really all across the world. There were mass global protests. Some met with really intense police brutality. There were terrorist acts, like we were talking about looking at what sort of bordered on domestic terrorism in other countries, specifically Italy and Africa, with a lot of rising up against people in power in those areas. And then you had the Black Panthers escalating war with law enforcement here in the United States. It was just a very, very complicated time. Alan Shane Dillingham, who lectures on the 1960s at Spring Hill College in Alabama, states in a UK article, quote, almost every major national leader of the Black struggle in the United States is assassinated, end quote, meaning during this period of time. And he goes on to say, I don't think that people sit down and contemplate that history, not just Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., but also Medgar Evers, who was a civil rights activist in Mississippi, as well as various members of the Black Panther Party, including Fred Hampton in Chicago, who was a young, charismatic Black Panther leader who was 22 years old when he was killed by the Chicago police in his bed in the middle of the night. So I think it's it's safe to say that those deaths reflected the enormous threat that the struggle for Black liberation posed to certain sections of the U.S. and of society and were really reflections of the strife and emotional underpinnings at the time. But when we look at the deaths of JFK and his brother, Robert Kennedy, we have perpetrators with fixed grievances and severe mental illness, respectively, which could also be exacerbated by the overall stressful state of the world and, of course, in the United States during the 1960s. So I just wanted to sort of like paint a backdrop for this moment in time because you and I are going to cover JFK's assassination, but also looking at a crime in the 80s. But I think this really does have an impact on the public at large. And I came across a little tidbit here that I thought was really great in which it stated, sometimes the assassination of a leader is so shocking and profound that it triggers what psychologists call flashbulb memory in a country's citizens. Many will remember forever where they were and what they were doing at the moment that they heard their leader was murdered. So I don't know what that's like because I haven't been around for something like that, but I always hear this, remembering yeah. where you were when something like this happened. Of course, I have my own versions of that, but it's not a leader of the country being murdered. So I just thought it very poignant. Yeah, I think that's a great description. I mean, my experience was certainly when John Lennon was murdered. I was in college when there was the attempt on Reagan. I remember those things. They were very, very big deals and, you know, halted all television, everything just sort of, you know, focused mm -hmm. on those the news. Anyway, we're going to be highlighting case studies at the end of today's episode that have to do with an assassination of a president and an attempted assassination of a president. So let's shift here to talk about the law enforcement agency tasked with protecting the president, as well as assessing a huge amount of threats. Who and what is the Secret Service? We talk about it a lot. It's turned, you know, the, the term is thrown around, but do people really understand the full scope or the narrow scope of what the Secret Service does? Because I feel like it is broad and narrow in very mm. specific ways. So their mission statement is, we protect our nation's highest elected leaders, visiting foreign heads of state, and national special security events, and safeguard the U.S. financial infrastructure and payment systems. Again, 
That's something I don't think a lot of people know, safeguarding the U.S. financial infrastructure and payment systems. So they're one of America's oldest federal law enforcement agencies originally created in 1865 to combat rampant counterfeiting in order to stabilize America's young financial system. And by the end of the Civil War, nearly one third of all currency in circulation was counterfeit. And as a result, the country's financial stability was very much in jeopardy. So to address this concern, the Secret Service was established as a bureau in the Treasury Department. A lot of people don't know that, although many conspiracy theorists do, and they're always harping yep. on that <laughs> that juxtaposition of law enforcement and finance. And money. It really, yeah, it really pisses a lot of people off. <laughs> So in 1901, following the assassination of President William McKinley in Buffalo, New York, the Secret Service was tasked with its second mission, the protection of the president. Now, today, the Secret Service's mission is twofold, protection of the president, vice president, and others, and investigations into crimes against the financial infrastructure of the United States. So as I've mentioned here on the podcast before, I have a relative who works to track down fraud within medical systems. He is part of the Secret Service and was you know, actively engaged in presidential arcade, but he now focuses on this specific type of work. He really has educated me in a way that is unbelievably staggering. The okay. amounts of money stolen from the government by U.S. citizens is just overwhelming. Let me give you a hint. It's literally in the billions. That much is defrauded from the government each year. And to pick a quote from my, my friend, like 25 cents of every dollar that the government spends goes through HHS. So even a small fraction of fraud is really big money. And this, so since he's Treasury or Secret Service Treasury, that's totally separate from anything IRS related. So is that taking out like tax fraud and it no. still is in oh, the no, billions? That's a, or that's is this a different altogether? one. Now, that's a whole other thing that really kind of, I mean, wow. it's, it's a fascinating subject. But one of the things that a lot of people don't know because it was kept kind of on the down low is that Obama was one of the first presidents that actually actively went after people hiding from the IRS. Oh. And Obama actually got back billions and billions of dollars of monies that were being held in the Cayman Islands and all of these shell companies outside wow. the U.S. from millionaires and billionaires within the U.S. So hmm. another reason that he was not liked by a big portion of the, the yeah. population. Like he was making them pay their fair share of taxes, you know? So the Secret Service has primary jurisdiction to investigate certain financial crimes, which can include counterfeiting, like I said before, or other U.S. government obligations, forgery, theft of United States Treasury checks, bonds, other kinds of securities, credit card fraud, telecommunications fraud, computer fraud, identity fraud, and certain other crimes affecting federally insured financial institutions. That's a wide breadth of things that they do. Yeah. I, you know, I, I would have thought so much of that just falls on local agencies. Yeah, I mean, it, what's made it complex is the ease with which we can do financial transactions now, which, you know, many people that are younger than me don't realize that, like, you had to rush to the bank at the end of the week. Like, yep. you were, like, rushing to get your check cashed. You know, I remember when ATMs came out and, like, it was holy crap, I can get out money. Any, I didn't have any money, but I could get money out any time of day or night. Like that's a relatively new thing. So this, this wonderful upgrade to our experience also has a dark side too, because electronically transferred money is very easy oh, yeah. to, to move around, to steal, to hide. 
So that's one of the things that the Secret Service definitely investigates. Yes. So some interesting history to note here. In 1867, the Secret Service responsibilities broaden to include quote, detecting persons perpetrating frauds against the government. This appropriation resulted in investigations into the Ku Klux Klan, non-conforming distillers, smugglers, mail robbers, land frauds, and a number of other infractions against federal laws. And then in 1906, Secret Service operatives began to investigate Western land frauds, and the Secret Service's investigation returned millions of acres of land to the government. And this is when operative Joseph A. Walker was murdered on November 3rd, 1907, while working on one of those land fraud cases. So he was the first Secret Service operative murdered in their history. In 1917, Congress enacted legislation making it a crime to threaten the president by mail or any other manner. I guess they were getting a lot of threatening letters, I guess, and had to codify that. And then let's jump all the way to 1965. Congress passes legislation making it a federal crime to attempt to assassinate the president post JFK death. So why that wasn't a thing, I don't know. I mean, obviously, just plain like murders on the books, but at least there could be a federal crime attached to it. Also, Congress authorized the Secret Service to then start protecting a former president and his wife during his lifetime. See the emphasis on him and his wife (laughs) and his lifetime. And then 1971 was a very cool year because Lori Anderson, Sue Baker, Catherine Clark, Holly Huffschmidt, and Phyllis Shantz were sworn in as the first five female special agents of the Secret Service. 2007, this was notable because protection begins for presidential candidate and Senator Barack Obama in May, which was the earliest initiation of Secret Service protection for any candidate in the history of the Secret Service doing these duties. So presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, she already received protection before because she was a former first lady. So before she even entered into the race, that protection was there for her. But what's notable is that Barack Obama got it very early as well. And then in 2009, the 56th presidential inauguration was the largest and most complex event ever overseen by the Secret Service. In all, five separate national special security events were associated with the inauguration of President Barack Obama, and the Secret Service oversaw the implementation of the security plan for each one of them. So it was a massive, massive undertaking for them. Well, clearly, I mean, that's going to be an enormous, enormous world event that one of the world's superpowers with a history of ingrained and embedded racism is actually electing or even has has it running a black man. So yeah, that's a very big deal. By law, the Secret Service is authorized to protect the president, the vice president, or other individuals next in order of succession to the office of the president, the president-elect and the vice president-elect. They also protect the immediate families of the individuals I just mentioned, former presidents, their spouses, except when the spouse remarries, children of former presidents until the age of 16, visiting heads of foreign states or governments and their spouses traveling with them, other distinguished foreign visitors to the United States, and official representatives of the United States performing special missions abroad. So what are some other ones? Major presidential and vice presidential candidates, as you talked about, and their spouses within 120 days of a general presidential election. Other individuals as designated per executive order of the president and national special security events when designated by such by the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. So 
it seems like it over the years it has really expanded to yep. the point now where the president can sign an executive order and say this individual or that individual needs protection as well. So look, the challenge of profiling anyone that could be a danger to any of the categories that we just mentioned really started with the Secret Service in the 70s and 80s, because after several close calls or plots against Nixon, Ford, Carter, they began working with mental health professionals out of Bridgewater State Hospital for the criminally insane in Boston, Massachusetts, in order to start trying to figure out how to assess for the levels of dangerousness within these threats that were coming in against this class of protected figures. It's very exciting to me that they started reaching out to mental health professionals back then. And that collaboration ended up resulting in the Exceptional Case Study Program, which was basically the Secret Service's version of Mindhunters. So Dr. Fine of Bridgewater and Special Agent Bossacule went around the country interviewing incarcerated assassins and those who had attempted assassinations of public figures, including Mark Chapman, who had murdered John Lennon. Most of were very open and accommodating. And listen to this. When Mark Chapman was interviewed, he talked of a letter that he got that stood out from all of the other letters and correspondence that he was getting in prison. And he said this one stood out because the person writing him sounded, his words, very deranged. That person ended up being Robert Bardo, the man who stalked and murdered actress Rebecca Schaefer. So crazy. Did you know that before we started diving into this? I'm kind of blown away by that. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> it's also not. like, it's so ironic too, that like, here's this person that you're interviewing who is mentally ill themselves and has committed a terrible crime and they're going, hey, I'm bad. But like, yeah, this letter really disturbed me that I got. Well, wow. and and I ended up getting this from the book that we mentioned in our school shooters episode. And I think I talked about that I was reading in our, just our last previous episode, but Trigger Points by Mark Follum. And he goes through and does sort of the history on threat assessment, but he breaks it down by the different areas. And so he notes how like they, they went out and did these interviews and then later, you know, knew about Robert Bardo, of course, because then it starts to take off into this area of trying to figure out what stalking is all about. So wild stuff. But this, this project took five years and they studied 83 offenders going back to 1949. And in 1999, Fine and Vosicule published their findings in a paper titled Assassination in the United States, an Operational Study of Recent Assassins, Attackers, and Near Lethal Approachers. Basically covering all those who have acted out rather than just people who have threatened without any action. So this indicated that this project was meant to help law enforcement do their job of prevention and intervention as well when it comes to these types of crimes. The study focused on thoughts and behaviors associated with the crime or act. And for those that they couldn't interview, they reviewed archival data and had over 700 coded data points. So let's talk a little bit about what they found in their study. I love that you zeroed in and found this because I, I can't help but thinking about our recent live stream with Dr. John Delator because 
he had a discussion and I love when somebody else gets on a rant like I usually do. And one of the things we were talking about was his experience with people who call themselves experts in a particular area that's a little squishy. And the one, the example he used was body language experts. And we were all riffing on the fact that there's, that's not a thing. There is no data that studies this. So here is a perfect example of how you actually create a needs assessment to figure out what it is you need to look at. And then you go look at it and then you code it and then you analyze that data that's where the real good stuff comes from so you can understand what the phenomenon actually is. So the findings from that Secret Service study, 60% of the targets of the Violent Act were individuals being protected by the Secret Service and over half of the attacks took place at the home or office of the target. 40% took place at the temporary sites like hotels or locations of rallies. Handguns were the most common weapon used. Identified motives were notoriety, revenge, idiosyncratic thinking about the target, hopes to be killed, interest in bringing about political change, and desires for money. Those who wished notoriety or suicide by cop were most likely to target someone who was actually protected by the Secret Service. So there's actually some thought going into it. Like, this is, if I really want to be taken out, this is going to be the target that actually can complete that. So those with an idiosyncratic belief, like, the idea is that this action is going to save the world or it's going to it's going to engage in some kind of vengeance or to right a wrong or avenge something they were more likely to target a public figure or celebrity interesting they also found that there was no single profile of the attacker That probably sounds familiar to our audience from other types of violent offenders that we've covered. The ages range from 16 to 73, but 86% were male and 77% were white. Half were single or never married and half were married at least once. Almost half had some college education and over half were unemployed at the time of the attack. But those who targeted Secret Service protectees were more likely to actually be employed full-time. 34% had no arrest history prior to the attack, and only 20% had a previous offense for a violent crime. And then 56% had prior offenses for nonviolent crimes. The majority of them, 66%, had never been incarcerated before. That's really fascinating. I mean, and I we got to stay on track here, but that's something that we could really, really drill down into about, especially in today's world of instigation by shitposting online about someone with a very low background incidence. I found that fascinating. But let's look at what they found in this study when it comes specifically to the area of mental health. 60% of these individuals had had some contact with mental health services at some point in their life. But Less than one-fourth of that 60% had contact with mental health in the year leading up to the attack. In less than half of those incidents, the offender was delusional at the time of attack. The most common mental health issue was depression, which came out at 44%, and also 41% of them had a history of suicidal threats. And you did something really great when you were organizing these notes as you put threats in air quotes, or I'm putting it in air quotes because it's in quotation marks, because there's a whole world within that term that we as clinicians use. We think about gesture. We think about ideation and people outside the realm of mental health may not be able to discern as succinctly as we need to in our line of 
evaluation. So very important there. Very few of them suffered from auditory hallucinations, but 43% had a history of delusional thinking. So we've talked about this in the past when we've talked about gang stalking. There's the idea that you can have internal stimuli, which is hearing things, seeing things, but you can also have really significantly altered thought and belief systems and the belief that you're being persecuted. And you can have that completely to the exception of having any kind of auditory hallucinations. So while, again, let's just say that while few suffered from auditory hallucinations, 43% of these perpetrators or potential perpetrators had a history of delusional thinking. Over two-thirds had an identifiable grievance at the time of the attack, and almost all of them had a history of significant grievances. We just talked about that recently in one of our other episodes, harboring and collecting of grievances, right? It's a very big deal. Over half of these had a history of harassing other people. So that's where it really gets interesting into sort of like some antisocial qualities of violating the rights of others, even if the violation is merging into their personal space and or merging into arguments, challenging. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it doesn't come to physical action, but you can be just as frightening when you're forcing your belief system or your threats, your assaults by verbal means. Also, over half had a history of harassing other people and the vast majority were described as social isolates. I think I like that term social isolates rather because it's it actually speaks to descriptive qualities rather than glorifying qualities like lone wolf, right? Mm. We're all trying to move away from lone wolf. Very much so. Interesting. And this one blew me out of the water because I would not have expected this, but the study showed that not a lot of substance use was indicated or present in the study sample. Right. Very surprised by that. Yeah. So just a conclusive observation by the authors. They said, quote, each of these men and women at some point came to see an attack of a prominent person of public status as a solution or a way out of their problems. So it's, although it kind of started all over the place, I think because there is no profile, we can't say like, oh, a man this age with, you know, these characteristics or demographics is who we're looking at. I think we're starting to look at the type of mental thinking that's going on. And we're going to dive into that a little bit more with this relatively newer term that I'm going to kind of geek out over a little bit here. But it's going to, I think it's going to clear some things up because it really did for me when it's, when we're looking at something that we feel like doesn't quite fit into delusional thinking or is not quite like obsessive. It can't hit all of those points. Yeah, but, but what is it? Yeah. So... We do have Dr. Reed Malloy to save us and some other people that came up with this wonderful concept. So this does drive a lot of violent behavior and one that we have seen emerge very recently with a lot of the political turmoil over the last few years. We did talk about this on a previous live stream when we talked about overvalued beliefs with, again, our friend, Dr. John Delatore. So this is all going to come mainly from an article put out in 2019 from Dr. Reed Malloy and forensic psychiatrist Tahir Rahman and Dr. Robert Bauer. And they're really laying out a type of thinking that doesn't fit with obsessions, but also doesn't fit with psychosis or delusional disorder that we seem to see driving violent behavior. Yeah. Again, this is just fascinating that You know, these esteemed professionals who really know their stuff are coming up with this concept that is based on data that's been pulled. So 
This is this is what makes me call him Saint Reed Malloy because he's so good at what he does. So Ramon and his peers in 2018 in this article defined EOBs as, and I'm quoting from the paper, a belief is one that is shared by others in a person's cultural, religious, or subcultural group. The belief is often relished, amplified, and defended by the possessor of the belief and should be differentiated from an obsession or delusion. The belief grows more dominant over time, more refined, and more resilient to challenge. Thinking becomes very simplistic, binary, and absolute. The individual has an intense emotional commitment to the belief and may carry out violent behavior in its service. So it would be very easy for me, as someone that didn't do this research, you know, to use my clinical acumen to go, oh, it's delusional. Mm-hmm. You know, just to kind of water it down or put it in a category. And what they're doing here is like, no, we're going to carve out what we can see as significantly different from just a run-of-the-mill delusion or paranoid ideation. So to recap all those important points, it is a belief that is, one, shared by others, relished, amplified, and defended, simple, absolute, binary, no room for thinking in the gray, what we call all the time here, concrete thinking, black and white thinking, also intense emotional commitment. It becomes the focus. It becomes the passion and sort of the drive for this individual. And it may very well lead to violence because the majority of EOB holding people are not violent. Interesting. May lead to violence. Yes. Underlined bold for sure. So I think these points, these bullet points that you just recapped should be turning on some light bulbs for people that we didn't quite know what to call things. And for me, what comes to mind is QAnon, right? Like this isn't just one person with this crazy, wild delusion. This is actually shared by other people. Yeah, It's super intense and people are very emotionally committed to it. And there is no talking them out of it. That's what we mean. Yeah, And it gives them a sense of entitlement and grandiosity. Like I'm the one that is the holder of this information. That absolutely applies in this paradigm as well. Yeah, yeah. So extreme overvalued beliefs, these EBOs are really hitting the nail on the head, I think. There's also a key emotional component here that we see, and there's a good acronym for remembering it. It's ANCONDI, A-N-C-O-N-D-I. And it's a combination of three things, anger, contempt, and disgust. So contempt, we know what anger is. Contempt being... Oh, I I see this person or this thing is beneath consideration or they're worthless or they're deserving of scorn. And then disgust, just this feeling of revulsion or strong disapproval. And research has found that this is a very dangerous combination, one we haven't touched on before here. Matsumo et al. found that when all three of these things are present, it's actually predictive of political violence. So, you know, we have these EOBs that may lead someone to be violent, but then you bring this emotional piece interwoven with the cognitive piece, and it can actually predict political violence in Matsumo's research. So I found this completely fascinating because as I was reading that, it really reminded me of that those three elements are absolutely part of John Gottman's key predictors in whether a relationship will last in couples therapy. And let me tell you, if you're hitting those horsemen of the apocalypse, if you are constantly angry, you're contemptuous of your partner, and you have disgust about 
them, basically there is no chance for that relationship. Like there's possible if it's on varying levels, you know, when you use some therapy, but chances are very, very low. If that's sort of your baseline for treating other people, you're not going to have a lot of success in that particular relationship. So tying it back to what we said earlier about people being social isolates. Well, this is one mm. of the reasons that they're a social isolate is because that grandiosity, that narcissism allows them to feel that other people, situations, things are beneath their consideration and they're sort of disgusted with it. There you go. Very interesting how it ties in that emotional component that you're talking about. So when it does go to violence, we're seeing this evolution from fixation to identification. So you become, your identity becomes intricately enmeshed in this obsession with this fixation, with this thought, with this binary thinking. You might remember those warning behaviors from our school shooter episode last month. Again, it goes from what they are thinking about to who they become in terms of someone who feels propelled to carry out an assassination. They may go from thinking that they're undervalued and misunderstood and evolve into someone who thinks that they have to be the one to show the world what wrong has been done to them. Yep. Fascinating. So this idea of extreme overvalued beliefs would certainly drive threat assessments when a case is coming to the attention of mental health, law enforcement, or even private assessors, because it's going to give you insight into their grievance and how to intervene or get their needs met in a much more healthy way. If that's possible, if you can actually mandate treatment for somebody like this, that's been deferred or diverted into mental yeah. health treatment. Yeah, I, I think definitely, you know, in our school shooters episode, we talk about the off-ramp project and definitely with the kiddos and the earlier you can intervene, the better. But as they get older and these are really ingrained, you're right. I think it becomes more of a challenge. Yeah, we have as part of my day job and it's being integrated into more mental health programs around the country is what we call PATH, P-A-T-H-E, which is providing alternatives to hinder extremism. And it's the idea of where can you intervene along that path that will redirect all of that sort of unbridled emotional energy that's heading towards extremism. Yeah. I just want to add here, this is very recent. There's a very new study that was presented at a conference just a couple of weeks ago that found that that identification warning behavior, the, oh, I have to be the one to do something about this, their research found that it significantly differentiated those who had acted out violently at the January 6th event at the Capitol from those who didn't act out violently. So that was, I, I, can't, I don't think that's published yet. It's just was presented at a conference preliminarily. So, wow, that's a lot. A lot of psych stuff it has me very excited. We're going to get into our cases, but let's take a break here to hear from our sponsors. Welcome back, everyone. So U.S. presidents, did you know that one in four presidents has been the target and of assassin's gun since the founding of our country. Four U.S. presidents have been murdered while serving in office. Can you name all of them, Scott? <laughs> no. Nope. I knew I, Abraham Lincoln, of course, but the other, I, you know, until we started doing the notes, this, that was the only one I could think of. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. So in 1865, President Abraham Lincoln was murdered by John Wilkes Booth while sitting in the balcony of the Ford Theater in Washington, D.C. Booth was an actor and a Confederate sympathizer who had originally planned on kidnapping the president in order to demand the release of Confederate prisoners. And he had an extreme overvalued belief that 
ended up influencing his actions. Yeah, I love that. You know, when we talk about our vintage cases, when you can go back and you can look at enough data, and this is one that even as old as it is, there's a lot of data on Booth's background for them to be able to come up with this. Another one, President Garfield, who was killed in 1881, as the president was arriving at a Baltimore train station, writer and attorney Charles J. Guiteau shot him twice. One bullet grazed the president's shoulder and the other pierced his back. For the next 11 weeks, Garfield endured medical malpractice before dying of complications caused by infections, which were contracted by the doctor's relentless probing of his wound with unsterilized fingers and instruments. You have to remember that this was before antibiotics. It was medicine was really brutally done then. He had, I know it's get your fingers out of my wounds (laughs) and at least wash them. He had survived for a total of 79 days after being shot. Then in 1901, President William McKinley was murdered on September 6, 1901, at the Temple of Music in Buffalo, New York. He was attending the Pan American Exposition at that time. He was shot twice in the abdomen by Leon Chogols an anarchist who was armed with a 32 caliber revolver concealed underneath a handkerchief. President William McKinley survived for a few days before also succumbing to opportunistic infection, this one with gangrene. Not a good way to go. Incredibly painful, lots of fevers, probably was delirious and incredible pain at the end. Yeah, my goodness. And then we have President John F. Kennedy The assassination of United States President John F. Kennedy took place at 12.30 p.m. on Friday, November 22nd, 1963 in Dallas, Texas, during a presidential motorcade in Dealey Plaza. Kennedy was riding with his wife, Jacqueline, as well as Texas Governor John Connolly and Connolly's wife when he was fatally shot by Lee Harvey Oswald from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. All right, so here we're turning to Lee Harvey Oswald as our first case study. And again, to all you conspiracy theorists, we're not covering the many alternative theories to JFK's murder. We're actually profiling the person here so as to not make this like a 20 hours long episode. (laughs) We can't do that. Now, we don't have forensic evaluations and interview material with Oswald because he was shot and murdered days after he murdered President Kennedy. So we are going with a number of resources here. Some of them were conflicting, but we got some good stuff, some, some really good information about how he grew up, how his mindset sort of started to go in the direction of these extreme overvalued beliefs. So I think we have a good amount to work here, but let's start with his childhood. Lee Oswald was born on October 18th, 1939 in New Orleans, Louisiana to Marguerite Oswald. He had two older half brothers and his father actually died of a heart attack two months before Lee was born. Following her husband's death, Marguerite sent Oswald and his two older brothers to live in an orphanage once Lee was born. She was just like, I cannot do this with three boys. So he was initially passed around to some family members, and then he did end up going to the orphanage himself. And we have some interesting observations from his brothers who have been interviewed over the years. And his one brother, Robert, described their mother, Marguerite, as very domineering and very high-strung. Not that we're going to do any mom shaming for like creating a monster or anything. That's not what we're doing. We just want to give you a perspective from these boys' views at the time. But he felt that she also just had this sense of entitlement where 
she always thought she was meant for something more. Like she wanted to be somebody. And he really feels as a much older brother that this mentality got passed on to Lee at some point. And he noted that, you know, other people would also describe his mother as someone who voiced that her life wasn't fair and she got dealt a bad hand, kind of had this narrative going on as they would come in and out of her life when they were young. So at some point, Lee gets reunited with his mother and just Lee, not the other boys. And they move to New York where his one of his older half-brothers is now an adult and they end up moving in with him. And Lee is described as being kind of mom's little companion. She would often tell him that he was better and brighter than all the other kids, but then wasn't really left with any guidance of like what to do with that. She was just kind of pumping him up with words, but then was very absent from his life because she was working. But then she would also tell him, hey, you know, you're you're smaller than the other kids and you're more fragile than the other kids. And then kind of keep him in this place where he was really like timid and not adventurous like other boys his age. So he grew up really sullen and angry and a little bit of entitlement going on there. A neighbor even reported that he was vicious just for what appeared to be the fun of it. Like he would stand on the side of the neighborhood and just throw rocks, pelt rocks at other kids to kind of see what would happen. There was another incident where he threw a knife at his brother and the mom just dismissed it. And he had also threatened his mom with a knife while they were living in New York. And after that incident, his brother said, you guys got to go. Like, this is escalating to a place where I, I don't need you living in my house anymore. So they get up and they move back to Dallas. He was, again, essentially kind of left to himself because she was working long hours. He starts ditching school. He gets placed in detention hall a lot, so much so that he actually gets assigned a social worker because he's truant from school so much. And there are some recorded interviews with the social worker. She is so astute in her profile of him and what he was really going through at the time. It, it's really interesting to watch her talk, but she described him as an emotionally detached boy. And she says he gave off the feeling of a kid that he knew nobody gave a darn about him. So he just kind of did his own thing, which is very sad when you think about it. But he also felt that he had better things to do than go to school. And she, his social worker, went on to state that he was very emotionally frozen and never had a trusting relationship with anyone. And since he hung around with no one and made his own meals, she said he had no emotional resources at all. He just didn't have anyone to model for him. So absolutely, very sad. What you're describing, I, I will say this because I'm going to circle back around to it is mm -hmm. we're definitely not going to be doing mom shaming, but we right. are going to be talking about influences that parents can have on their kids because this is a clear example of an individual who was really at a deficit for some of the most basic needs of a child, you know need to get away from the the old school idea of the schizophrenogenic mother that influences. It's just always easy to blame the mom when there are plenty of examples out there of crappy dads that do the same thing to sure. their kids. So let's talk about his early adulthood. And I'm kind of out of breath because I've been fighting boxes falling on me in this. I saw that. They were attacking you. Yeah. 
There was a woman that drowned in like up in Portland or something. She had a sound, like a tiny closet sound studio that she did voiceovers. Uh-huh. And there was a flash flood and she drowned in her studio. What the fuck? Yeah, she had <laughs> they blocked the door and filled up with water. Isn't that terrible? Oh my Ugh. God. Don't drown in boxes, please. I'm not going to. So let's talk about Oswald's early adulthood. He gets interested in global political issues when he picks up a leaflet on the streets of New York that had to do with the trial of the Rosenbergs, which was a huge, huge deal. The Rosenbergs were American citizens who were convicted of spying on behalf of the Soviet Union. It ended up in them having being put to death for treason. This is when he starts studying socialist literature. And before the truancy officer could take him into custody again, he and his mother hightail it back to New Orleans. They unfortunately move into a high crime area, and he starts to identify as Marxist even trying to join a local socialist youth league. So just after turning 17, he enlists in the Marines. This is in, I think, 1956. He qualified very quickly as a marksman and a sharpshooter with a rifle. Interesting for any of the conspiracy theories yes. that want, theorists that want to say it's somebody else. He's qualified as a marksman and a sharpshooter. He then gets deployed to Japan working on radar technology. And his peers reported that he would openly talk about his Marxist ideas, his Marxist belief system, and he would talk really poorly of the quote-unquote capitalist society in which they were living. Now, while in the service, he was found to be in possession of an unauthorized firearm. He was very angry and resentful. He challenged the sergeant who disciplined him to a fight. Very dumb. You don't do that in the military. Clearly, you don't do that in the military. This then led to a second court-martial, the first one being for the firearm, and he was sent to the brig. And then it's at this time that he applied for an early discharge and a passport. Both were granted, and he hightailed it back to New Orleans. So very, very quick ending to his military mm-hmm. career. Well, remember how, you know, every time we talk about psychopaths, people say, like, when they make perfect, like, operatives in the military. And this is an exact reason as to why they don't. They absolutely don't. Because of the authority issues. Right. Because the rules don't apply to them. Exactly. So let's, let's fast forward this a little bit. And in October of 1959, he travels through Europe and eventually lands in Moscow. It's unclear if he hired a guide or if one is just assigned to certain people entering the country automatically. But he gets this guide who's taking him around to see the sights in Moscow. She picks him up every morning, drives him around. But on the second day of her driving him around the city, he tells her that he doesn't approve of the American way of life. He tells her that he is a communist and that he wants to defect to the Soviet Union. So... How convenient. She's kind of a go-between between him and the KGB, and they allow him to stay for some time. And this is likely because they want to observe him and then maybe see a little bit of what he has to offer them, this this American former soldier that wants to defect. And ultimately, they realize that he's pretty useless. And they tell him that he has to leave the country. So Lee is not good with this. The next day when the guide is supposed to meet him, he's not in the lobby of his hotel. And she goes up with security to do a welfare check. And they find him in the bathtub, unconscious, having cut his wrists and seemingly attempting suicide because he was going to get kicked out of the country. 
and had to go back home to this way of life that he vehemently disagreed with. Well, the cuts were very minor, so they took him to the hospital, stitched him up, and then he gets transferred to the psych ward. So he's in the psych ward, and they are about to release him, and the KGB calls up the psych ward and says, no, we want you to hold him for a little bit longer. So they hold him, and some KGB officers come in, they confiscate all of his medical paperwork, and then they whisk him away to essentially kind of assess him for further counterintelligence information. They end up putting him up in a hotel, and after three days, he's in his hotel kind of waiting for them to come to him, and he gets antsy, and he goes to the U.S. Embassy, hands the desk agent a written letter, has this all written out. Instead of just, like, saying what he has to say, you know, he's very carefully written this letter that says, hey, I came here, I intended to defect, and I have a plot to give up information from my time in Japan. Basically, like, I know these radar codes, and I'm going to give them up. So (laughs) this person from the embassy reports this to the U.S. military, and they go, okay, then we'll just change the codes. (laughs) Like, whatever. (laughs) Nice try. But the KGB, turns out, they're also unimpressed again. But... They want to keep his suicide attempt quiet because they don't really want it to turn into this weird international scandal to where, like here, this American comes to defect, but he wasn't really worth anyone's time. And then there's a suicide attempt. So they they kind of want to appease him a little bit. So what they do is they say that he can stay. I'm, I don't know. I think it's really interesting. I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering if, well, look, the KGB at that time was actually, was really impressive like old school pre you know cold war like psychological understanding and manipulation i mean these were not these were not incompetent people right and the idea that like I, it's interesting just thinking of the position that they would be in so he's made a suicidal gesture which it's clear he really didn't intend to hurt himself because there were minor wounds and he made this completely inept attempt to sort of show himself as loyal to us, maybe we can exploit his idiocy for something, you know? Maybe, yeah. They're thinking, they're, they're thinking the long game. Yeah, there's actually a female politician that advocated for him to stay to kind of avoid any spotlight coming on them. But yeah, I, I do think they were psychologically astute, you know, in their war games, perhaps, to where maybe they did think we can exploit him or, okay, now we kick him out. Like, what is this like rogue guy going to do next? Right. What are the repercussions of, of not taking any action? Yeah. 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 So, so anyway, they say he can stay. They move him to a much smaller city outside of Moscow, a city called Minsk. And they give him an apartment, like actually a really nice apartment, which was kind of unheard of. You know, everyone's living in poverty. And he ends up getting hooked up with a job at like a local TV factory, but they just sort of leave him alone. They just kind of put him up and then like, okay, assimilate into life here. And he quickly realizes what the drab daily life is like in the Soviet Union. He notes that he makes money, but he really has like nowhere to spend this money. You can't really like go out and do fun things. <laughs> it's it's just like drab. It's just the perfect word for it. And so he starts to have this 
realization that the socialist lifestyle in the Soviet Union is not what he pictured it to be. He does make some friends at the local college and ends up teaching English to somebody. And then he has this little circle of friends where he goes to a party and he ends up meeting this very beautiful woman, young lady named Marina. And Marina's pretty smitten with him. He tells some tall tales about himself that is impressive to her and him just being a foreigner is kind of interesting and intriguing. And they end up getting married. So they get married, they have a daughter, and then they end up petitioning to return to the United States. It took about 18 months for both the U.S. and the Soviet Union to say, okay, yes, we agree to let you guys go. But they they head back and he anticipates that his return to the U.S. when he gets off that plane, that there are going to be reporters waiting to meet him and want to hear from him. So he prepares a statement to be able to read to them, but there's no one there when he steps off the plane and he just can't understand why they don't want to talk to someone who defected to the Soviet Union. Yeah. Well, that's also interesting. There's a couple of different ways of looking at it without going down the road of conspiracy theory, but it could also be that on the U.S. end, they absolutely kiboshed it. And like, absolutely no reporters, nobody goes to this. It's a dead issue. You know, that that kind of thing yeah. goes on all, or used to go on all the time. So anyway, he's now back in the U.S., both he and Marina move in with Lee's brother in Fort Worth, Texas. The FBI interviews him about his time in the Soviet Union. He was reported to be really aggressive and ended the interview after becoming upset that they had asked if he was a spy and even if he was a CIA operative. Like, he didn't like that. He absolutely yeah. did not like those accusations at He's all. He's like, don't you guys know that? <laughs> you guys are the government. Wouldn't you know that? <laughs> What are you trying to gaslight me? Yeah. So he and Marina moved from Fort Worth to Dallas in 62. And it's around this time that he starts to become more outwardly angry. He begins picking fights at work and at home, eventually becoming physically abusive to Marina. It escalated very quickly and became more intense and frequent in just a matter of months. So his behavior becomes even more bizarre when he creates an alias for himself by the name of Alec Hidel, and he opens a secret post office box under that name. He starts getting communist and socialist magazines delivered there as well. He's starting to long to be more than just a student and a reader. He starts to become fixated on Major General George Walker, who was very public about the need to stop Fidel Castro and his communist regime in Cuba. Lee believed that Walker was a dangerous fascist who should be stopped before he became politically powerful. Oswald saw him as the next Hitler, and on April 10th, 1963, Lee attempted to assassinate General Walker by firing a cheap Italian rifle round into Walker's home. He stalked his home, photographed it, found an area in which to stash the rifle, and then created maps of the entire surroundings. Walker survived, and it was not revealed that Lee was the shooter until after JFK's murder, although he had confessed to Marina the night of the shooting. Did so, you know about that? That he had, I had a no idea. first assassination attempt? Yeah. So practice, you know, yep. practicing makes him even a little bit of an outlier around some of the other attempts that we are looking at in totally. the, that paradigm of OBE. So Lee found himself fired from his job at the photo lab at very short time after his attempt on Walker's life. He moved very quickly with Marina, taking their baby to a house in New Orleans. He learned of a large number of Cuban exiles that lived in the New Orleans area, and this enraged him and fueled more focus towards communist efforts. He went on TV and radio as an outspoken Marxist, but stopped short of saying he was a communist. 
He then started handing out pamphlets advocating for the USA to stay out of Cuban matters. And he was confronted by Cubans on the street, and they were all arrested for disturbing the peace. So there was also this incident where two professional anti-communist personalities got Lee to come on a live radio show exposing his past about failing in an attempt to defect the Soviet Union and really grilling and embarrassing him. He was caught totally off guard. And at the end, he opened a notebook, asked the interviewers for their names and addresses, and then glared at them as he left. Like, <laughs> I know. he's got some balls. Like, he's a I narcissist. Know. He's clearly got some balls. And then in that past year, he had been fired from three jobs. So another big factor there, that instability, mm-hmm. that inability to maintain interpersonal relationships and sort of a balance between relationships with people so that you can do whatever menial job you're working on or not necessarily menial. We, we deal with difficult personalities in all aspects of careers, yeah. but clearly this was a deficit in his character. So following that job loss after job loss, he would spend his days in the wilderness shooting his rifle or sitting on the porch of his house, practicing reloading his rifle and dry firing. So doing that very military training exercise of quick loading, firing, quick load, fire, probably also practice taking it apart, dissembling it, putting it back together. He tells his wife of this scheme to hijack a plane and fly to Cuba to fight for Castro. She laughs this off, and then he gets the idea to jump on a bus to Mexico in order to get to Cuba. He goes and tries to get a visa to Cuba, but he's met with many obstacles and denied, thankfully. Yeah. Then he's very upset. He's shaking and on the verge of tears in front of the consulate workers. And this was just seven months before his assassination of President Kennedy. Yeah, there's a lot of unraveling that I'm seeing happening here. Yeah. Like, I feel like... Desperation. Yes. Like, this is just about that transition point between fixation and identification, for sure. Like, okay, I'm not just... I don't just have, like, this belief about something. I need to go and do something about it. So much so that he's going to jump on a bus and go to Mexico and try to get into Cuba that way and all these other things. So now he's back in Dallas with no job or means to support his family His wife was pregnant again, and she's living with a friend of hers with their daughter. I think they're still back in New Orleans. And Marina's friend that she's living with happens to know someone who works at the school book depository and ends up getting Lee a job there. So he would... He was staying at a rooming house in Dallas, and he would work at his job, and then he would go back and visit... Marina on the weekends, and they would argue constantly. Several accounts state that he was quite brutal to her and continued to be abusive when he visited her, but definitely very emotionally abusive. So as he's living in this rooming house back in Dallas, he's living under his alias over there. And Marina would talk to him on the phone in during the week when he wasn't visiting. And she relayed to her friend that she was really worried about his mental state. And I thought this was so poignant. She said, quote, he lives in a fantasy about being a great man. And it's it's it. Like he he just wants to be something bigger than what he is and really make a difference in not a good way because he hates everything around him, it sounds like. A roommate at the rooming house recalls Lee watching intently as the news talks about Kennedy's upcoming visit and talks about the route that the motorcade's going to take. And then two days before the assassination, he goes to visit Marina in New Orleans with her friend. And he 
basically begs her, please join me in Dallas. Things will be different. And she emphatically says, no, she just can't do it anymore. She has another baby coming and she feels safe with her friends. So he spends the night there at the friend's house and then his rifle is in the friend's garage. So the next morning he retrieves that and kisses his kids goodbye and leaves $170 on the nightstand as well as his wedding ring. And Marina noted that that's probably all of the money he had. $170 was a lot. So that was probably it. On November 22nd, 1963, he goes to work at the school book depository as normal. The office was buzzing with the anticipation of the motorcade going by. And he goes up to the sixth floor and spends the morning filling book orders as usual. And then around noon, his coworkers went to lunch. And this is when Lee takes the opportunity to screen off a corner window with boxes. So it's like stacked boxes that if you were standing on the other side, of them, you wouldn't see him at the window. And observers on the road said at some point before the motorcade came through, they saw a man with a rifle in the window on the sixth floor. But everyone just assumed that it was part of the president's protection service and no one says anything. And then it's time for the motorcade to come by and three rifle shots are fired from the sixth floor in about eight seconds, killing President Kennedy and injuring Texas Governor John Connolly. After this happens, Lee is observed first in the lunchroom, appearing very calm. A police officer comes in and even stops to talk briefly with him, but lets him go. They kind of they kind of rush in and say, like, okay, is is there anyone here that doesn't belong? Sort of thing. And the manager like looks around and says, no. Everyone here belongs. So Lee takes this opportunity to flee the depository on foot. He boards a bus, but then he gets really nervous because the bus gets stopped in traffic. So he gets off the bus and then he gets in a taxi. He has the taxi take him to his rooming house where he retrieves a revolver, stuffs it in the front of his waistband, and now he's on foot again. And at this point, he's walking through the streets of Dallas. He's confronted by police officer J.D. Tippett and Lee murders him with his revolver right there on the street. And now he is really on the run because there are witnesses to this. He runs into a theater, but witnesses end up pointing him out to the police and the police go in, have the theater turn on all the lights. And there's Lee sitting in one of the theaters. He tries to draw his weapon, but it takes seven officers to tackle him and take him into custody. The whole time he's now screaming police brutality and things of that nature. Now, we don't really get any more from Lee himself because he was shot, right? He was murdered himself while in police custody just two days after all of this happens. So there's there's some conjecture here, but Lee seems like he is hitting many of the items and many of the traits that the research identified that we've talked about in this episode already. He's male, he's white, he likely suffered from depression, he's definitely a social isolate, caused trouble with others. If past behavior is a predictor of future behavior, he has another assassination attempt that occurred before this, plus all of the extreme overvalued beliefs. I think what's really interesting and notable is that this was done from a distance with a rifle. And you see so many assassinations of public 
figures happening up close where they sort of push through the crowd with a handgun. So just, I don't know what it means. Just interesting. But with his background, it totally makes sense. Yeah. And ironically, I mean, this is a a weird thing to say, is for somebody who basically failed at so many things, he was actually a good marksman. You know, he was trained in the military, but clearly his lack of social skills and insight into his behaviors prevented him from developing past this scared kid that, you know, then defends it with a this hard armor of narcissism. Mm-hmm. You know, and if we're going to conjecture today into what we know about his upbringing, which is way more information than we would with other people in some of our maybe vintage crime episodes, I can identify some things that that clearly pop out for me, specifically in the sort of the understanding of ACEs or adverse child experiences. I mean, he definitely had a traumatic childhood, lack of support, you know, limited engagement with his bio family, and a significant amount of time spent in the care of institutions. So this lays a groundwork for other factors to have a significant effect on him later in life. His mom does appear to be a person that holds a victim stance. Like, you know, she feels that she just was dealt a bad hand. And that jumps out to me because Someone who inappropriately crosses boundaries with their child about complaints and using, you know, even you use the word that he was described by his stepbrother as his mom's companion, which is basically a stand-in for a husband. So she's possibly dumping all of this high-level emotional processing stuff that he's just not capable of understanding. But what a child will do is they will take on some of that. Some kids are incredibly resilient and they'll figure it out really quick of like, oh, my mom's off and... I just need to compartmentalize. But he probably was a result of very, very poor boundaries and what I would call a very enmeshed relationship because of her poor boundaries. So look, mom is also described, besides seeing herself as a victim, that she dispenses throughout her life an air of entitlement for herself and for Oswald. So that air of entitlement without any real support for an expansive view of self starts to feed this possibility of narcissism here, which is very much in line with this whole paradigm that we're talking about, these with the OBEs, with the fixations, yeah. with the the idea that there is something special about me because the real fear underlying all that is there's nothing special about me and I have no special skills. Right. He's trying so to I'm fill gonna... that black hole. Exactly. And he's working overtime. And as a result, the overtime work develops into this grandiosity about how the world should work and how Marxism should work and capitalism should work and how communism should work. And This is a really great example of a term that we haven't really talked about a lot. Here are two terms, actually. Narcissistic collapse. Narcissistic collapse is when a narcissist is faced with the absolute objective, valid truth that they are not legitimate. You know, a big example of this in another podcast was Dr. Death, Dr. David Dunch, when he is confronted in the courtroom by all these surgical experts that are saying, He didn't know what he was doing. He was completely incompetent. And the the guy falls apart. Yeah. I see that happening here, too. He had a lot of narcissistic collapse, which culminated in that suicidal gesture because the picture of his life in Russia had fallen apart after a great deal of belief that it would represent everything that he thought he was going to be. He was going to go to Russia and become sort of this icon of the American who sees the light, you know? So really a high level of narcissism with some clear antisocial qualities. So without going line by line with sort of the criteria for what an 
extreme overvalued belief is, I think we do have a lot that fits here. We have a belief of his that was shared by others, right? Like even his sympathetic yeah. communist views at the time, but he came, became very binary and rigid in his thinking and made this transition from this is what I think to I have to be the one to do something. And ultimately it, it hits that last factor of leading to violence. So it's just these EOBs are just such a smart fit for so much, even looking backwards as relevant as it is today too. Oh, absolutely. And there have been numerous U.S. presidents who have had assassination attempts or plots on their lives. This includes Teddy Roosevelt in 1912, who was shot in the chest right as he was about to give a speech. And as an experienced hunter and anatomist, he correctly concluded that since he was not coughing blood, the bullet had not reached his lung and he refused suggestions to go to the hospital. Instead, he delivered his scheduled speech with blood seeping into his shirt. What a stud. <laughs> yeah, definitely. What a way to come across as a hero to your constituency. Right? So let's turn to another presidential assassination attempt in which we have a ton of information on the perpetrator. On March 30th, 1981, President Reagan was leaving the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C., where he had been talking to the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. Several shots were fired, rang out very loudly. And John Hinckley Jr. fired his 22 caliber revolver at the president and his security team. This was all caught on camera. It was played over and over again on the news. Reagan was wounded when one of the bullets ricocheted off of the limousine, striking him under the left armpit. Press Secretary James Brady, Secret Service Agent Timothy McCarthy, and Policeman Thomas Delante were also wounded during the shooting. President Reagan's wounds were not noticed until he began to cough up blood. He was then taken to George Washington University Hospital. And after 12 days in the hospital, he was able to return to work. Wow, that's a really, when a bullet strikes you under the armpit, that is no good. That's right into the lungs, right into the heart. And here we have him opposite of Roosevelt coughing up blood. So that sounds very serious. During the trial of John Hinckley Jr., there was a lot of attention given to his strange beliefs that preceded his actions and essentially acted as a motive for attempting to assassinate President Ronald Reagan. So if you aren't familiar, Hinckley had watched the movie Taxi Driver, starring Robert De Niro as a paranoid cab driver, and Jodie Foster as a young prostitute who becomes friends with Bickle, De Niro's character, who is portrayed as a lonely, unstable guy. And in the film, Bickle stalks, prepares, and fails to assassinate a U.S. presidential candidate. So in the trial, Hinckley's trial, his defense experts argued that Mr. Hinckley held delusions as part of a schizophrenia diagnosis. The defense drew parallels between the movie and Mr. Hinckley for the jury by saying that Hinckley, quote, identified with Travis Bickle and picked up an automatic ways of many of his attributes, end quote. The jury was shown disturbing letters written by Mr. Hinckley to Miss Foster in which he professed his love for her and planned to win her heart by, quote, getting Reagan. So I have... An excerpt of the very last letter he wrote to her. Would you mind reading it for us, Scott? Sure. Jody, I would abandon this idea of getting Reagan in a second if I could only win your heart and live out the rest of my life with you, whether it be in total obscurity or whatever. I will admit to you that the reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I just cannot wait any longer to impress you. I've got to do something now to make you understand in no uncertain terms 
that I am doing all of this for your sake. By sacrificing my freedom and possibly my life, I hope to change your mind about me. This letter is being written an hour before I leave for the Hilton Hotel. Jody, I'm asking you to please look into your heart and at least give me the chance with this historical deed to gain your respect and love. I love you forever. Mm, Yes. Right. Your face says it all right now. (laughs) So then we can gather more information, a differing opinion, if you will, when we look at the prosecution's case during the trial. So expert witness and forensic psychologist Dr. Park Dietz was cross-examined about Mr. Hinckley's fixed false beliefs and his imagined relationship with Jodie Foster. Dr. Dietz felt that Mr. Hinckley was not delusional. And he said that he was attracted to Miss Foster and interested in her by watching her through films. However, he says, here, I have some court transcripts. Dietz, no, he didn't have a fixed belief. And it's hard to find evidence that he had a false belief. He had unrealistic hopes. Defense attorney, what is that called besides? And then Dietz goes on to say, that's called being a dreamer. (laughs) The defense attorney says, is being a dreamer a manifestation of a serious mental disorder? And Dietz says, no, it isn't. So I think if we take what we know now and put this in hindsight back on this, Dietz is actually trying to explain an extreme overvalued belief. He's saying like, this doesn't fit with delusional disorder here. What are your thoughts, Scott? You have... (sighs) Yeah, I've got that look look on my face. Um, Well, look, you know, Dr. Dietz has been around a very long time and he's been an advisor on many things and he's done some great research. And I'm going to give you that, yes, this is likely a chance to describe a concept that really had not been imagined before. Right. Like, I I get that. I'm really not comfortable with sort of, it feels like a little bit of shilling for the prosecution in a way. Look, here's, here's something that I would say. And clearly, and look, that guy has accomplished more in a decade than I have in my entire career. So I'm not going to go that far. I just, I'm going to challenge it a little bit. And we have a better understanding now, certainly of these, these experiences. And we also know the influence of parasocial relationships. You know, it is possible that Hinckley does have an aspect of delusional thinking and delusional beliefs. And going in and watching a movie over and over again, where he then identifies with this character and feels that he's developed this relationship with Jodie Foster, you know, which, by the way, completely inappropriate age range as well. Like, yes. you know, there's a she lot of other stuff. 14? I think she was 14 playing younger and she looked younger. She looked like she was, you know, about 12 12 years old. So, I mean, I guess, you know, it's all those years ago. So Dietz was working, I guess, the best with what he had. But I I have a little bit of a a different opinion. I mean, if it's not delusional disorder and it doesn't fit with obsessions in the traditional sense, what do we have here with Hinckley? So Dietz did give more information from his examination with Hinckley that he really feels that was able to rule out delusional disorder. And when he was assessing for erotomania, he did ask Hinckley if he thought he would ever actually be with Jodie Foster. And if you'll recall from our earlier episodes, erotomania in the most concrete sense is a fixed delusional belief that this individual is actually in a relationship with the object of their fixation. That other person who might be a celebrity and that that other person is actually in love with them. So clearly it does not meet that criteria here. He does not believe 
that Jodie Foster's in love with him. He doesn't believe that she's sending him messages through music in the elevator or sort of more bizarre aspects of delusional disorder. But he does feel like he has a chance with this person who doesn't know him from Adam. So that to me is is the, the gray area here that I don't think that they're necessarily looking at. But look, almost immediately, Hinckley did admit that he knew he could never really be with Jodie Foster, which rules out, like I said before, that fixed delusional disorder. He also did not have any other symptoms of psychosis, which would be like we were talking about the visual or the auditory hallucinations. Additionally, the consensus by forensic psychologists who have reviewed this case over the years, they just drill down into the fact that he is very narcissistic and grandiose. And throughout Hinckley's hospitalization commitment over the decades, he consistently was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. And Dr. Malloy feels that he also has borderline personality traits with some flavors of erotomania happening. And he acknowledges that the delusion is not strong. So, we have to also remember that there are different forms of narcissism. And what we're used to in the public discussion is the most flamboyant and egregious versions, which are the overt narcissists. And people forget that there's actually a classification of covert narcissists. And covert narcissists has narcissistic personality disorder, but their presentation hides a great deal of the typical signs and symptoms of a grandiose narcissist. So a grandiose narcissist would be an overt narcissist, which is what we're all used to seeing, what we're all used to talking about. Covert narcissists may present as shy and modest, but their internal emotional experience is one of being persistently envious of others. They're unable to handle criticism, and most significantly, they lack empathy for others. And then that starts to veer into these other flavors, like Dr. Malloy is saying, I would go so far as to say, in this case, flavors of ASPD or antisocial personality disorder. So covert narcissists often tend to spend a great deal of time alone because they experience hypersensitivity to criticism and constantly compare themselves to others. Like overt narcissists, they experience severe challenges in managing interpersonal relationships. Thank you for that. Wow, that brings so many more layers to right? You know, just what people have said over the years, but it's it's a lot more depth than just saying, "Oh, okay, yeah, grandiosity and narcissism," you know, as as he's been observed because he has been in a psychiatric facility for so long or was that this feels much more just deep into what could really be going on here. Yeah, like a little bit more tuned, yeah. tuned more finely. And because it actually sheds a light on the tone of the letter that he sent, I feel like that explains the covert narcissism a lot better. Look, in their article, there also may be some spectrum disorder issues. I don't think anybody's looked at that. It would be great if we had more information. But, you know, I mean, he's a free citizen now, so who knows if we're going to actually have the ability to do that. So in their article, Reed and Rantham offer the opinion that Hinckley held extreme overvalued beliefs rather than delusions or obsessions regarding his relationship with Foster. So let's go back to those hallmarks of EOBs and see if it fits. A belief shared by others? Yep. He wanted to be with a beautiful celebrity. Lots of people think this. It's not that abnormal of a thought. <laughs> I, I hear you. I mean, Chris Hemsworth calls me from a block number at night. So you he say. doesn't say anything. He hangs up. I know it's him. Chris, you're married. You have kids. Move on. Stop it. I'm married. I'm married. Next point was the belief relished, amplified, and defended. I think we saw this pretty clearly in his affection for her and in the letters that he was sending to her. Yeah. 
amplified really fits there. They're big, grandiose expressions of his emotions and the, the assumptions about what he can do with those emotions. Next one, was his thinking simple, absolute, and binary? Really, there doesn't seem any room for gray area, and especially in his correspondence when we look at, at the letters. Very resistant to change over time, but I think that last letter of like, if you do not decide to come be with me, well, you're pushing me to this. Like that, as yeah. if that was the only answer. Like contingency, black and white and contingency thinking. Was there intense emotional commitment? I don't think we're able to get the full extent of it without reading all the correspondence and all of you know what he has to say in his forensic evaluations. But they were extensive as far as how he communicated with Jody. I just keep saying Jody like we know her, Miss Foster. But we get a pretty good... I met her at the gym once. <laughs> oh, lucky. <laughs> years ago, years and years and years ago. <laughs> but I, I think we get a pretty good idea through just that one that you read. There's a lot of emotion flowing through those words. I would completely agree. And then the last point may lead to violence. Again, remembering that the majority of EOB holding people are not violent. Is this a situation? Is this an individual that may lead to violence? Yeah. I mean, obviously he shot at the president and the president's detail, pushing his way through a crowd to get up there and multiple shots. Yeah, very interesting, too, because Brady, the one who was shot in the spine and crippled, actually has gun legislation. It was the almost the first of its kind in order to take weapons out of the hands of mentally ill people. Yep. So Reed and Ranham argue that many people in society share Mr. Hinckley's passionate attitude towards celebrities. Okay, His over-involvement, however, which is very commonly seen in borderline personality disorder, took a right turn and became maladaptive. To what is his overvalued love object. They opine that he had a wishful fantasy as opposed to a loss of reality testing, which is what we see in schizophrenia or other psychotic disorders when someone lives in the bubble of their mental illness and they're not able to challenge their own belief system. So bottom line, in order to convict Hinckley for the assassination attempt, the prosecution had to prove that the defendant was either not mentally ill, or if he was, that he could still appreciate the wrongfulness of his actions and conform to the law. Well, a jury ended up finding Hinckley not guilty by reason of insanity, and he remained under institutional psychiatric care. Public outcry over the verdict led to the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984, which altered the rules for consideration of mental illness of defendants in federal crime court proceedings in the U.S. This act removed the volitional component that a defendant lacked capacity to conform their conduct to the law. That was taken out of it. Right. And they had to meet that standard with the ally test. So the ally test had been a test that was established by the American Law Institute Model Penal Code, which provides that a defendant would not be criminally responsible for conduct if, quote, as a result of mental disease or defect, he lacked substantial capacity either to appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct or to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law, end quote. Now, in 2016, a federal judge ruled that Hinckley could be released from psychiatric care as he had been assessed and was found to no longer be considered a threat to himself or others, 
although with many conditions. And after 2020, another ruling was issued approving that Hinckley may showcase his artwork, his writings, and his music publicly under his own name, rather than anonymously as he had in the past. Since then, he has maintained a YouTube channel for his music. Yep, 30,000 subscribers. You guys can go on there and see him playing the guitar and singing. Yep, his restrictions were unconditionally lifted in June 2022. He is a free man. He certainly is. Well, I will round out this part of the discussion, but stating once again that most individuals with mental illness are not violent, nor do they attack public figures. However, there is substantial evidence in the research that the majority of stalkers, attackers, and assassins of public figures and celebrities are actually likely to have a major mental illness. So the disorder in question can be present at the time of the attack or in their past. Additionally, the research states, quote, what appears at first to be an issue-driven and politically motivated pursuit of a public figure can actually be hiding a severe psychiatric disturbance. Basically, both can coexist. You can have someone that has their grievance, has their extreme overvalued belief, but also there's going to be a good amount of people who have a diagnosable major mental health disorder when we don't always see that with other types of violence. This, this is one of those where the research is saying, no, actually... Mental illness is a little bit more prevalent here than in other cases. So for the first time, we're discussing a very specific type of crime, a rare one where mental illness is quite prevalent along with that grievance piece. It's pretty remarkable because I think you and I over and over again are always like, hey guys, <laughs> mental illness and violence does not go hand in hand. And it doesn't in this, the most general, most broad right. terms. But this has really been one of those narrow issues where we do see that manifesting. One quick actual note on threats, the vast majority of those who successfully, in quotes, of course, attack or assassinate, don't threaten first. They well, don't send out like letters or anything. Of course, because the CIA told them not to. Oh, God. come on. <laughs> Wake up, sheeple. Got to get a little taste of that. <laughs> all right. All right. So we've gone through our, our cases and our research. So time for some media depictions. Yeah. All right. So one that came to mind for me is a 1993 film, In the Line of Fire. I don't know who I was in 1993, but I thought this was a great movie at the time. And I went back and watched it last weekend. So this is the character Frank Horrigan, who is played by Clint Eastwood, is a Secret Service agent who keeps thinking back to November 22nd, 1963, when he was a hand-picked agent by President John F. Kennedy. And he became one of the few agents to have lost a president to an assassin when Kennedy died. And now, in present 1993 time, in the film, there is a former CIA assassin, Mitch Leary, who is actually played wonderfully by John Malkovich, because that man can do no wrong, really. And he is stalking the current president who's running for re-election. So John Malkovich's character has spent long hours studying Horrigan, the Secret Service agent, and he begins calling him and taunting him and telling him of his plans to kill the president. He has a grievance where he plans to kill the president because he feels betrayed by the government that he once worked for. So Leary was removed from the CIA and the CIA is now trying to have him killed, he says. And after talking to Leary, Horrigan makes sure that he's assigned to the president now, even though he's super old. <laughs> he says, 
I want to be on on protection duty, which puts him working with fellow Secret Service agent Lily Rains, played by Renee Russo, who also was in like every movie in the early 90s. So beautiful. Horgan has no intention of failing his president this time around, and he's more than willing to take a bullet. And as the election gets closer, Horgan begins to doubt his own abilities, especially when his colleague, played by Dylan McDermott, is killed by Leary. But... Horgan may be the only one who can stop Leary this time around. So that's the premise. I can tell you this movie is basically an old Clint Eastwood trying to get into a young Rene Russo's pants the entire time. And it's kind of gross in a lot of ways. <laughs> and most especially because it works, she ends up falling for it. And I'm just right. like, no! Is, isn't there that famous scene where he's like waiting for her to turn around, turn around, look at me, look at me, look at me. It's like yes. very stalkery. It's, it's Yes. And then, of course, the first time they go to make love, like they're stumbling into the room, dropping their like their magazine rounds and their handcuffs. Like it's just a trail of secret service paraphernalia to the bed. <laughs> so silly and cheesy. It's really? Well, I my favorite example is well, I have I have two that have to do with assassinations. One is the classic first iteration of this movie, The Manchurian Candidate. Right. It is so well done. It is a thriller, and it's about brainwashing. It's about a POW who is captured by the Koreans, and he is brainwashed into responding to a set of commands. And there's a whole shadow government going on in the U.S., and Angela Lansbury Angela Lansbury is one of those actresses that, like, they would just say, yeah, we know you're only 32, but you're going to play the mother of this (laughs) 50-year-old. Like, they would just do that to her. (laughs) But she's such a good actress, and she's sort of, you know, so regal. She plays an absolutely, like, evil, evil person who's, like, one of the main players. And there's, like, a really creepy thing that triggers him to go into his assassin mode. It's like when... When somebody suggests, why don't we play a game of cards? So there's this theme throughout the movie of of playing cards, which is really fascinating. And then for the Supernatural version, which is really good, is this really cool movie starring Christopher Walken. It's The Dead Zone, which is a Stephen King novel, and it was directed by David Cronenberg. So really one of the better adaptations of a Stephen King movie. And you know it's going to be wild with that combination. And so Christopher Walken is a guy that gets into a car accident. He wakes up from a coma with this ability to know a person's future by touching them. He touches them and he gets this like electric shock where he just gets the entirety of their lives all in one big dump of information. And for the most part, like it's disturbing. He like uh, starts to avoid people because, you know, he can't get too close to people because he knows too much information. But after shaking hands with an up and coming politician, he understands that he has to kill this guy because if the guy follows through with this line of prediction, he will become the president of the U.S. And he's so unbalanced He's going to start a literally an apocalyptic nuclear war because he's so crazy. Hmm. So Christopher Walken's character realizes that he has to kill this guy. And it has a really great twist at the end. So it's from the early 90s too. highly recommended. Really, really good one. 
Good stuff. Things to put on your list, people. Yes. <laughs> so folks, thanks for hanging out with us. This is a long episode, but some great news. We are going to start offering ad-free episodes on our Patreon feed behind the couch. And we're starting to put those episodes up with 100 and then moving forward. And then as we have time in our abundant spare time, oh yes, we will start to fill in the older episodes as well. So new and old Patreon members will be able to go back in and listen to an ad-free version version of all of our content and media. Yep. Yep. It's about time and well-deserved for all of our lovely Patreon members. And we just had so many people join this month. It was kind of crazy reading them yesterday during our live stream. So cool. Yes. All right, everyone. We are going to put some finishing touches on our presentation and pack our bags for Dallas. Hopefully we'll see you there in a couple of days. And please join us next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, guys. Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Earcult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled behind the couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we would be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential. <laughs>